Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Collect and Spec podcast, the podcast all about the world of collectibles, technology, and entrepreneurship. I am one of your hosts, Zakiel, otherwise known as Merfolk Magic, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Chris, otherwise known as Wolf of Tint Street. Hello, hello, hello. How's it going, Chris? Going all right, getting by. How about you? Good, good. Same as well. This episode is the second in our Community Spotlight series, where we talk with community members in our hobby. And this week, we have a very special guest, Tarkin from Manalik, USA. How's it going, man? Hey, how you guys doing? Good, good. So much. We're super happy to have you on. Yeah. And, super uh, happy to be here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I know that you're one of the larger MTG finance players in the hobby, so we definitely have a lot of questions to kind of pick your brain and kind of hear about your experience. So we're yeah, super it's, excited. Uh, I have a weird story, so uh, I'm always always like to share with people who are curious. So I'm, I'm stoked. Awesome. So our first topic of every week is what are you working on either in your business or side project or hobby? So we'll start with our guest, uh, Tarkin, what are you working on this week? So this week, uh, I have been preparing our first ever buy list, which I will be launching tomorrow, Monday, um, which I don't know if this cast will be live by then, but that's, uh, I think that's July 13th. It's a uh, pretty big moment for uh, for the business. You know, I've been doing a lot of wholesale via channels like Facebook and international partners, um, and this is the first time that you know we've made the jump into into actually having a live buy list and kind of testing out our pricing methodology and whatnot. So it's a kind of a big deal for us. So I'm pretty excited about that. It's taken up most of my energy this week. So yeah. Where where will people be able to find that buy list if they're interested? So I will be launching a Google Sheet link, um, and I'll be posting it in the financial discords, in particular the QS, uh, the MFA, Conviction Gaming, and the BAN, the BAN discords. Those are the, the big ones. And then I will also likely, you know, I'll do some social media about it via Twitter, possibly some other platforms, and then I, I might launch it on some of the Facebook buy-sell groups. So most of the places where probably majority of your audience, you know, would be on, on the internet. Uh, they should be able to see it and find it. Sweet. Yeah. I am curious just to already start, you know, throwing questions at you. It's because I'm, I'm curious in, in general uh, for buy list creation. <laughs> and obviously, uh, tell me if, if these are uh, information that I should not be privy to. But when you create a buy list, are you looking more at like internal margins of cards that you know you can sell or, or just... How does a business come up with like, these are the cards that we want versus the cards that we don't want kind of deal? Yeah, <laughs> getting started with a big one. Yeah, it's, it's actually a pretty, uh, it's, pretty it's a pretty complicated question, to be honest. You know, intuitively, most people in the hobby, from a hobby perspective, would think, okay, you know, you just go in, you, whatever's been selling it really aggressively and whatever's hot for, you know, the, the tier one decks in the meta at the moment. That's what you're mm -hmm. buying. As someone who, uh, uh, and that makes total sense, and, and I, I think that's probably what a lot of vendors do, but I think if you look at the, the bigger vendors, you'll notice that they almost, they buy nearly, they'll buy a lot of stuff that you look at and you're like, why, are, why is Card Kingdom paying 10 cents on that, right? Mm -hmm. And that's because, you know, one thing that I've discovered in the business is that the more you have available uh, in, in your stock, the actual the more kind of velocity, the more kind of volume and sales you're going to do. And we, we can talk about that concept a little bit later on as well. Uh, but mm -hmm. essentially, 
what I'm looking for are cards that I believe, or based on the data that I have in you know sales data, uh, have some element of demand and will sell. So the buy list is, could go all the way down to quarter cards, right? Mm -hmm. Now I can't I can't go into detail about no, the, actual, the actual the uh, actual pricing you know oh, yeah. methods that we have, but I can what I can say is that it's not simply oh we go for cards that are in all the decks and stuff that's like quote unquote really hot, right? Um, mm -hmm. I'm I'm I want to buy a lot of different cards, and I really particularly want to go down to the cheap cards. Mm -hmm. And again, this is this this is because this concept of having a dense inventory is really really important, and it's more important than I think the average finance person kind of kind of realizes. And, and I understand, you know, I come from uh, I, I come from this the speculation side. I started, you know, just buying and flipping a few cards here and there, and I would never. Go. I want to go buy a bulk twenty-five cent card. It just didn't make sense. But mm -hmm. sort of being at the um, at the level I've kind of evolved to now, um, it, it it makes a lot of sense. So I, I don't know if that's if that answers your question oh, yeah. completely. Um, but essentially, yes. You know, I, I'm looking to buy cards that have demand based on uh, either my sales data or pricing data. You know, and so for me. I believe that we'll just take we'll take a card that has a um, we'll use TCG player because that's the the metric most people know of or mm -hmm. they, they think about. We say TCG low before any shipping. If a card if a card has a TCG low price of a twenty five cent, that means that it's not listed for five cents, which is most bulk commons, uncommons, and even many bulk rares. It's it's got enough. There's enough people are buy are willing to pay a quarter for it. Um, that that's the actual low floor. Hmm. Uh, that is a sign of demand. And then if you go, okay, well, does that card have a buy list price? Well, if it has a buy list price, then somebody can't keep it in stock. You might argue, well, if it has a buy list price, maybe that vendor is just trying to put it in stock. Sure, uh, that's that's valid, but that's not the majority of you know cards that have a buy list price. They're not just trying to fill in their 200th slot. Some of them, yes. But many of them, no. Many of them is because somebody went out and bought that card. And if somebody is buying a card, I want to have that card in stock. So that's that's the basis sort of of where I go with, um, amongst other things, that's the, the core basis of like what I set my buy, you know, what I want to be buying. Um, and then within that, obviously, we have some some unique pricing stuff. But um, but that's basically it. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's just, it's really interesting to me. I, I think you know this very well about me by now. I'm very used to, um, I think this is the right term for it, attacking buy lists. So uh, seeing how they're constructed on the other end is uh, is definitely kind of cool for me to, to kind of see the mindset of. Yeah, I mean, you know, for the average finance person, buy lists are what you should be living and living and dying by, you know. Uh, I mean, when I started, that's, you know, in my opinion, a card is worth, what a buy list will pay for it. I don't care what the TCG low is. I mean, I care obviously, but what I'm saying is when I go, what is a card worth? You know, every magic card, you know, is worth what a wholesale and what is wholesale. That's where I start. That's where I would start with. Um, and then from there I would, you know, you know, go on and be like, okay, well, is it, is it a good buy? Am I paying a good price? Whatever. I, I almost never, I mean, I, I did speculate sometimes, but if I did, I applied the same things that I think you and Zakil, you probably, I, I'm not sure your perspective on this, but I know Chris, you, you mm -hmm. know, you go, well, 
you need to be covered by the buy list. And, and that's 100% correct. For, for the average person that's, that's not earning a living and they're not doing a high volume and stuff, they need to be, they need to be covering, they need to be looking for interest and looking for assets that, are, that their position is covered to buy. And that's by the wholesale price. That, that's absolutely what they should be doing. Otherwise, they're just taking on unnecessary risk. It's curious to me, sorry, not to, to just to, to jump in real quick, though, is that because yeah. when you're talking about creating your buy list, you're looking in turn. It sounded like, uh, obviously, I mean, you are, you're still looking at like TCG prices and markets and the lows, but uh, it sounds like you're really looking at internally what what you know your venue can sell and what your venue can sell well that has uh, some form of demand, any form of demand and go why. But what you also just said is that when you buy a card, you want to buy it at buy list. So I think at that point, it becomes wise to then compare all of the different buy lists against each other, which I think a lot of financial players do in terms of retail costs. I mean, you're going to compare TCG versus like ABU, Card Kingdom and the like. But I really don't feel like people have gotten into the habit of doing that with buy list yet. And honestly, I don't think buy lists have gotten in the habit of doing that with other buy lists yet. Uh, so I'm just curious on like ha- that evolution. And have you taken that into consideration when you do uh, set buy list prices? Yeah, I mean, for y- literally years, I, I would I, I would sit there and go, I have no idea why AAA vendors don't have somebody that's on the phone calling up like, why isn't channel calling up card King and going, Hey, guys, um, I've got 200 of these cards that you're paying so and so on you guys get with that. Like, why these B2B wholesale exchanges don't exist is, is beyond me. And you're absolutely right. You know, you should be compa- doing all of your price uh, comparisons fundamentally from the buy list side, as well as retail. I mean, you got to do all of it, but you definitely you have to be looking at all the buy lists as much as possible. Now, you mentioned like, you know, my pricing methodology now for a buy list. I can say that it's less buy list focused because I live, you know, I... I've kind of transitioned to, you know, primarily a retail kind of a tier 1.5 vendor. So mm-hmm. I don't live in, I don't personally for the business have to go strictly by buy list anymore. We, we do a lot based off of retail and our, our retail sales and, mm-hmm. and that margin and whatnot. But for years and literally probably until the past, I would say 18 months when I started getting on TCG player direct and whatnot. Yeah. It, everything was based on buy list. Everything was based on buy list. And I couldn't understand. I was like looking at all these spreads between buy list. I'm going, why is it, why, why is it troll like just shipping these to so-and-so? And no one really had a good answer for me, except that unfortunately, given the inherent inefficiencies in this, this business, which is probably the most inefficient business on the planet. <laughs> and uh, given just the kind of old school, yeah, given the old school methodology that that the industry approaches things with, you know, it's like, ah, oh, just, just nobody's doing it, you know? And it's like, they've got, we've got these fiefdoms, you know, we've got like CK owns the West coast and star city owns the Southeast and just channel fireball owns the North Northwest or whatever. And it's like, everybody just wants to play in their own world. I'm like, I just don't understand. So I think that at least for me, when I, when I look back at like how it's cause I've, I've had this crazy evolution and in being in, involved in this industry. And when I reflect on it, I think the only the only reason why I've managed to like cobble together what I have is because I I stripped away I tried my best to strip away that from that old thinking and you know look at things from like okay like what what's the what's the top down thing here like magic cards are widgets they're units of value and I'm essentially a forex trader so I'm just simply exchanging you know I'm living on spreads right and when you, when you start stripping away like I'm a I'm dealing with fantasy cards and a hobby in this game and, and all these things that sort of, I, I think these subconscious sort of things that kind of 
hold people back. When you step away and you just start looking at it and you, and you try to see where you can innovate and you can try to see where the inefficiencies are and how you can get around those inefficiencies, that's when you know you start going like, wait, why aren't violets just talking to each other? I don't get it. That seems so, that doesn't make sense to me. So, you know, I, I, I think that, uh, yeah, to, again, to answer your question, you have to be looking at wholesale because if you're, if you're not, then you're just kind of like buying a card, you, you're paying, your basis on it is whatever, you, whatever it is. You might not even be paying buy list. And sometimes you can't get cards at buy list and that's fine. But whatever, how, whatever, your, whatever your calculations are on your side when you're assessing you know, how much risk you're willing to take on on something you buy, you just have to be calculating all the buy lists. I don't know, I don't know why you know, most people don't do that, especially this day and age. You know, I, I'm kind of an old guy. I started back in like 2014 and 15, which in the finance world is pretty old at this point. You know, like that was Corbin Hostler and Jason Alt. Those were like the the revolutionaries of the time, and Sigma Nosepresser and those guys. And you know, finance was still pretty small, obviously in the magic community. But at this point, magic finance is like much bigger than it was just five years ago. Mm-hmm. And you know, these kind of you know this this way of thinking. I just it's surprising to me that people still. Just like look at a retail cost, go, well, it looks like it's probably going to be going up because Goldfish said, you know, Saffron said it was in this hot new deck. And so I'm just going to buy it. And they don't, they're not doing any of these like wholesale, you know, estimations and, and analysis. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I honestly, I just love the terminology that you actually use in the answer there. <laughs> and why do you think that it, like, at least is going back to what you were talking about, why larger stores don't talk to each other? Why do you think that is? Is that just because everyone is so focused on their own business or is it, they don't need to like they're almost because part of me feels as though some of the large retailers are successful despite themselves right like they just they just happen to have a lot of cards or they just happen to be in a position where they're just naturally going to get sales but do you think that inefficiency is just because of how like how the industry shaped up or do you think that's intentional i don't think it's intentional that's a good question i don't think it's intentional i do think you know as someone who deals with I mean, I don't have a big inventory, but even as someone that deals with a decent amount of sales on a daily basis, you do sort of just kind of get caught up in your day to day, you know, and it's just interesting to me that, you know, when you're as big as Star City, you know, and I mean, you have teams of people dedicated to different roles. It's surprising to me that no one has thought, or maybe they have, I mean, again, maybe, maybe I'm looking at this and I'm, I'm, this is a perspective that they've thought of and it just doesn't make sense financially. You know, they might say, well, you know, why sell it at wholesale when I can just leave it in inventory and it'll eventually move at a retail price? And so I guess there maybe there's some logic there and there's some some more complex math that they've done at their level that just doesn't make sense. But, you know, for me as a smaller, you know, approaching mid-tier, you know, group, I'm just kind of like, it's baffling. And I think that part of it is, I do really think that magic this the trading card industry in general for whatever reason lags behind like 10 years from like regular you know technology and 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 like business culture you know like it it took it took them i think just now like just two years ago card kingdom introduced like a csv upload for your to your you can upload a list to their buy list i mean that's like that's like what technology from like 1999 you know 2000 like <laughs> it's just baffling to me that we're so far behind you know tcg player and and i'm a big proponent of tcg player I, I know a lot of people hate on them and i have i absolutely have my gripes but in general i think tcg player is a really good thing but it's like you look at the back end and and the, the reporting and the data that's available and it's it's 
it's straight up amateur hour. You know, it's like, I almost feel like that's by design. I'm like, they, they're, they're doing this because they know the data is so powerful perhaps, but it, it's like, you know, I, I, you look at Amazon, it's like Amazon is this, this crazy enterprise level. I mean, you have to have like a degree in, in their back end just to like get through it. And then you look at TCG player where if you're like a high schooler, you could mess around with it. You know what I mean? It's just strange to me that there's this wide, there's this such a wide divide in the application of tools and technology and systems thinking. So I think it's a combination of exactly what you said, Zakil, where some of these companies, they happen to be quote unquote, the right place at the right time. Their inventory was massive and they just, they were, they were first to market and they, and then boom, it hit. And they're just kind of do what they do. And they have, they've been doing that for years, like troll and toad. It's like, a troll and toad at one point in time was one of the, the biggest, I mean, they were alongside star cities one of the biggest players in the game. And they, you know, magic is a small part of their revenue. Most of the revenue comes from other games and Pokemon, whatever. And, you know, they're just plugging along with their business, you know, and I think that's what happens with a lot of these. I mean, the only, the only company that in my mind, from my perspective, uh, not, I don't see the back ends, obviously, that's really early on tried to be on top of these things was Card Kingdom. You know, they had algorithmic pricing, they had everything was automated. And, you know, I see that also, you know, uh, John Sasso over at Channel Fireball, um, I've interviewed him for some podcasts before in the past, and, and I know his heart is in the right place. And you can see with some of Channel Fireball's new programs that they're trying to do things that are interesting. But, you know, Card Kingdom really, in my opinion, was one that first kind of like went, okay, let's, let's try and be a little bit more progressive, a little bit more innovative. And I, I really just think it's a combination of, like you said, it's like they kind of got successful, these businesses, some of these businesses, and we're in a world that it's like a bunch of cardboard card games and, and, and nobody, for whatever reason, nobody just attacks these things and, and tries to innovate or, or, or catch up with the times, I guess, with technology, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, 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 I don't have a clear answer for you. You know, may, maybe, there's, maybe there's a reason why it just doesn't make sense for them. But from what I can see on my side, it, it it seems like there would be there could be a benefit to more B2B wholesales between you know wholesaling between these larger groups. Maybe it's an ego thing. Maybe it's like you said, maybe it's like, uh, we, you know, we're Star City, we do our thing, we don't want to mess with other companies. And maybe that's kind of you know, there is a I'm sure you guys sense this. It's like there's this general paranoia with people that are involved in any aspect of the magic business. It's like, oh, I don't want to get screwed. I wanna I don't want to give away information. Everybody's an opportunist, you know what I mean? So yeah. I, who knows? I mean, you know, at some level, maybe that kind of, I mean, that probably reaches all the way up to the AAA level. You know? I know something that I've noticed just kind of uh, auxiliary is because I, I, I help my bosses don't hear this. I've job popped quite a bit. But what I've noticed is the further I, or I guess the closer I've gotten to basically Wall Street, the more I've seen people actually utilizing technology, software and tools in I guess what I would say, like modern tools and techniques. I had a couple positions for healthcare and my fiance, she, she's a financial analyst for uh, hospitals and they're using database systems and, and software and technology from 25 years ago. So I don't think it's that exclusive to magic. The thing that amazes me about magic is it is a financial industry wherein the sharper your tools are, the more margin you can gain. And it just yeah. amazes me that people are not I, I get because it's a children's hobby, but this this is a finance game. I mean, I am literally comparing this data to to stocks and treating it as such, and it's working. So it, it baffles me just that people are sitting on a finance element where tools can directly improve your margin and, and just not doing so. And like you said, Card Kingdom, I love 
their buy list, the algorithm that they have is not a complicated one either. Uh, you, you can yeah. calculate that, but it's a, again, basic concepts that you are able to implement on a wide scale can be so powerful. I don't want to, you know, I, I, I want to make sure I, as, as much as that frustrates me, you know, that was this, like, like I said earlier, it's like that kind of thinking was what really propelled me and got me more and more interested in all of this in this industry was because I went, I went, man, you know, I don't know if I can, am I allowed to plug other places here you know like yeah, I, I do okay yeah. so, so i i i just I, I don't know you guys but you know i i started with quiet speculation and at the time qs was like the bloomberg of magic and i thought i was like you know and kelly reed was sort of this like weird tony stark ceo type of dude and i was like wow here's a place here's a community that i feel people of thinkers that are approaching this in the right way you know like take it seriously i mean this is a business with a with literally billions of dollars going around it's it's much bigger than people really realize. Mm -hmm. Billions and billions of dollars being exchanged. Let's like take this seriously and let's not just treat it like it's like the 90s hobby shop thing that it that it used to be. And so that's really kind of driven my, you know, my my approach to this and I always I always just want the industry to be taken more seriously. Because at the end of the day, it's like, yeah, it's cool. And it's, you know, on the one hand, it's like, we're all passionate about magic because it's a game that we love and we have fun and we used to play it or we still play it. But um, there's this business side that's actually much more sophisticated than people realize. Yeah, it can so be. That, that, it can be, yeah. If, if, you know, if you really look at it that way. And, um, and so that's kind of, that's something that really, that excites me. And that's, that's something that I want to, that's why groups like Ban, I, I really like because, you know, it's, it's like, yeah, you guys are kind of punk rock and kind of cowboys, but <laughs> you, you, you approach it with, you know, your hard data and, and you, you try to apply systems thinking and you're doing, you're doing interesting things with data. And I like that, you know, that's, I'm cut from that kind of same cloth. So, um, yeah, I, 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 I hope that, you know, it doesn't sound like I'm, I'm bashing the industry. I just, it comes from a place of passion that I want more people to be doing interesting things. You know, I think the stuff that channel's doing now is really cool. Like this whole cards in a box. It's like, yeah, you know, we have so many inefficiencies in this industry with like grades and all these, all these nuanced things. How can we simplify these things? And so steps like there, you know, box up your cards and send them to us program and all these things, you know, finally, it's like, I like seeing when groups try and start implementing innovations, you know, it's, it's, it's a step in the right direction. Hey, you can bash the industry all you want. You keep plugging Ben. I'm on board, man. <laughs> <laughs> I think so, I got to add punk uh, rock cowboy to my Twitter description. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I, I mean, I, 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 I kind of, I got, I try to give love to all the discords I'm in. You know, I'm in, I'm in QS, I'm in MFA, I'm in Ban. Um, I, I, I think I'm in Conviction. I'm not. I got to check again. But um, you know, everybody has something to contribute, and um, you know, I, I just, I, I like it when groups uh, are trying to approach things um, with data and um, and trying to innovate. You know? mm -hmm. So it's interesting that you said people may not necessarily take, you know, trading cards as seriously as they should. And it's a multi, I think magic is a multi-billion dollar secondary market economy. And if you expand to Pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh and all these other places, it, I mean, it just, it scales exponentially. As far as the other side of collectibles and sneakers has kind of gone through a huge revolution over the past decade with StockX and, and some of the other groups who use analytics tools. I think there are an equal amount of people who are interested in Rolex watches or vintage cars or, you know, whatever it may be. Also adding in where tech, like what current technology could be applied to our market. Uh, and, you know, I guess what improvements that we could have just by modernizing the, 
the vendor space or the secondary market of trading cards. Where do you think that goes, right? If you were to make a prediction just the next five to 10 years, what do you think is a quote unquote, and if you can share, but what do you think is like, where do you think the industry should be? And what does that efficient marketplace look like? Hmm. Yeah, I, I've tried thinking about this. There's where I think it should go and where I think it actually will go. And I, I think the first is interesting. The second is unfortunately a lot more sobering. I think that, you know, in my opinion, I, I think you should have siloed distribution hubs like Amazon does doing fulfillment of singles. I at one point in time thought it would be interesting if there was sort of a futures market and seeing how others have clearly attempted to try and do that and how many pain points there are, I no longer think that's an ambition that someone should aggressively go for. Um, but I do think things like TCG Direct are trying to do um, in sort of, instead of just like this sort of black market, dark web, like cards being thrown around left and right, if you had these silos and these hubs where um, you had massive inventories held and you know cards were moving back and forth, um, similar to the way direct goes. I think that's that would be an interesting place to see where the business goes. And as far as data, I mean, there needs to be some big some big data analysis. The problem with both of these models is that no one wants to no one wants to let go of their cards and no one wants to let go no one wants to let go of their data, right? So again, this sort mm -hmm. of like sort of this like dog chasing its tail situation I feel we're in where you know, if we could have a campfire collective in the industry where you had like TK and channel, like all the majors come together and be willing to try and meet in the middle to either share some data. So we had a real market price or something, but obviously nobody wants to do that. Cause that's all that, that, that just, they feel like they would kill some of the competitive nature of the business and it probably would realistically. But, you know, if we had some sort of true market data based on like massive big data analysis, like if we were able to call all the retail and their their velocity and stuff like you're doing chris with checking inventory levels we could do that on like a big data massive scale um, then we could start getting like true you know market prices that's where i would like to see things go unfortunately again because of this thinking of like well no i don't want to give up any competitive advantage and no my cards are mine and you know uh, in in the example of tcg player it's like they could be they, they have all the infrastructure to start building a fulfilled a quote unquote fulfilled by TCG system, but they don't want to do that. They want to like just have all everybody's cards thrown into a big pool and just use them as one massive inventory to ship out through their direct program. It's like, okay, well that, you know, that it works, but it doesn't work. There's a lot of problems with that, you know. So there's the, the issue becomes, you know, what entities are gonna be willing to either let their data go or, you know, be willing to be flexible with their program so that, you know, we can have these sort of more central or it's just going to take up the, you know, pick up the sword as you will and be like, you know what, I'm going to start, I'm going to be the Amazon of magic. And they set up these hubs and they start buying from LGSs. And now they have these big wholesale and now they have wholesale deals with local, local communities. You have these like regional hubs and you have this network of stores that are selling to these larger hubs that are then distributing, you know, globally. And those are the kinds of things that, that's the kind of uh, the stuff that I'd like to see the industry get to. But unfortunately, I think that people are so, again, it goes back to this old thinking of like, they're so nervous. Nobody wants to give up a competitive advantage. Nobody thinks it's, I don't know if nobody thinks that stuff is possible or if it's too difficult or because of the nuance with things like grade and blah, 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 blah. 
Uh, these things aren't really realistic. I think that's what's holding us back and will continue to hold the industry back for, for a while. You know, I think you said five or 10 years, I think five years you said, I, I think in five years, it's going to be a lot of the same, to be honest with you. Um, I think you're going to have maybe one or two new big players, maybe, maybe one new big player that come, comes into the space or that grows into the space, but you're going to have, you know, the card kingdoms and star cities doing what they're doing. You'll still have LGSs. Uh, you'll still have, you know, local events and obviously you'll see a lot, there'll be a lot more e-commerce going on, but um, I don't know that it's going to be any different from guys like, you know, Chris and people at QS and whatnot doing scraping. So we can like try, I don't know if anybody's going to be releasing data, you know, like in a way, in a way that's, that you don't have to hunt down for it and go around all these loopholes. Unfortunately, uh, as much as I want to see that happen, you know, or, or, or something like stock, you know, MTG stocks, which is much is my favorite website. And that's where, I, that's where I started. I started all my data and everything I would use would be 100% based off stocks. You know, he had, he, he was doing something great. Um, and I was like, oh, wow, this is cool. Like maybe, you know, we can see a bigger version of this, but nobody wants to put resources behind something like that to make an industry standard. So that's, I guess that's kind of the answer to, my, to your question would be, that's where I would like to see it go. And, but I don't think we're going to see a lot changing as mm. far as the, the retail and, and the, the vendor side of it, or the way that cards, the, the way that the transactions are done. Which is kind of unfortunate because five years in high speed tech, or I mean, or just any larger business is almost an eternity. But like you're saying, in this industry, everything just moves really, really slow. But to that point, I would like to know what you guys think. Like, do you where what you think as far as how things will be done, or what the vision of the future is as far as the application of technology and how the commerce is going to be handled? I'm chopping at the bit to get in here. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> you you mentioned that nobody wants to give away a, a competitive advantage, so they don't want to share their data. So for me, I, like when I look at this industry, I wonder why, kind of like what you said with people on the phone with each other trading inventory, you don't have to reveal to your competitors like TCG or Channel Fireball doesn't have to reveal to Card Kingdom that they have inventory. You wait for Channel Fireball to call you up and, you, and they, they just ask, will you sell it X amount for this price? You don't have to say I have it or I don't. You can just say yes or no. Uh, and so what I've seen in a lot of industries is that the major players who have different niche areas of selling, which I would say that Card Kingdom, Channel Fireball, and TCG are the three that come to my mind, and maybe not Channel Fireball, but TCG and Card Kingdom specifically sell to, I think, different market segments. And I think if you have major players at that level band together in terms of a base layer, you don't have to share data, you don't have to share inventory, you don't have to do that, but you can make it so that it's impossible for another major player to or not impossible, but very, very, very difficult for another major player to, to enter the industry. And that to me is the most shocking thing that they haven't, they haven't done that. I mean, they're leaving the window wide open and in a way that it, I don't think it would really cost them any money to close this window. In fact, I think it would make it, it would make them more money. Uh, and I don't think I get the paranoia element that you're talking about. I've definitely felt and seen that, but this just seems like a logical business decision devoid of much. Obviously there's always some risk, but a, a devoid of a lot of risk. So I would be curious, first of all, why Card Kingdom or TCG doesn't hire just two more competent versions of me and then analyze your own internal data because they're clearly not doing that. There's so many opportunities on their own marketplaces that these, these vendors are not catching. 
Um, so I would be very curious if in five years, if these vendors have not hired two data scientists a piece or go on the cheap, get some analysts and you won't be as good, but Hey, you'll have something and at least do internal reviews versus other vendors. I mean, I feel like this is a very low, low cost investment that locks the industry with the major players it has now and provides room for advancement. And I totally agree with the cynical nature. I don't think there's going to be much change, but I, it just boggles my mind why there is no logical reason in my mind why they shouldn't be doing this or moving towards this. Well, one I second. Agree with you. What analysts not as good shots fired. My feelings are officially hurt. <laughs> <Go ahead. laughs> well, you, you have to contract somebody to build it and then you can have an analyst maintain it. Yeah, go. I'm just messing with I, you. Go ahead. <laughs> I tell you what, I mean, if Amazon, and, and the thing is, is Amazon won't do this because it's not big enough of a market for them, at least not right now. Amazon could come in and just destroy all of this. Amazon could come in, they could just, they could buy out TCG stock. I mean, M Amazon could, has the ability to, to literally do exactly what I'm saying. They could take over the secondary market if they really wanted to. And so to, to your point, exactly. It's just strange to me that, you know, and again, it's, it's kind of like, I have the utmost respect for the owners of these companies, but all of them came from like the early days of eBay and the early days of, of you know, the nineties era of this stuff. And I, I really think that's there's just this latency in in the industry to to move forward with this kind of stuff, you know. Um, but I'd love to see it, man. I'm I'm right there with you. I, I all of, all of that kind of that that kind of data science approach and and all that analytics. I I don't know why it's not happening. Zakiel, you said you're you're an analyst. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, previously I, I've worked in manufacturing, engineering, and analytics, and a couple of different stuff. My actual forecast i think the major bottleneck in fulfillment is actually an automation so i've been mostly interested in how robotics and how that aspect of um, fulfillment is being applied i know that there's a couple companies that have kind of experimented with it and have machines that sort cards but as you were saying kind of tcg player could certainly do their own fulfillment but we're seeing the pain points that they have as far as their union and you know, obviously right now in our environment, you can't, in, with regards to coronavirus, you can't have too many people in a closed space. And I've just been surprised that we haven't seen, with the amount of money that's in the industry, I know people have, there's been certainly a lot of uh, surface level looks at that, but I've been very surprised that there hasn't been more of that space because the reality is I think you could have an entire, you know, fulfillment factory with like two employees, right? You just have hundreds, you probably need a couple hundred thousand, if not a couple million dollars in equipment to, to make it happen. But I really think that that is more so the optimal business than just having, than just having like a hundred people running around pulling cards. Yeah. But again, yeah, right, no, that's I'm, a specialized I'm, tooling, right? I, it, and it's not easy because just with my limited experience in manufacturing, like picking up a giant piece of steel is much easier than trying to be delicate with, you know, a single piece of paper that could theoretically be worth thousands of dollars. But yeah, I don't, that's what I think. Like you said, the, that technology, that technology exists. I mean, and it exists at a level that it, it does it effectively. And it's, it's not the consumer level. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the stuff that's available to us on the market, there's, there's better stuff out there. I'm sure you've seen it. I've seen it. And so, you know, you're exactly right. I, I mean, TCG player could invest in that, kind of infrastructure you know we don't have we, we we don't see the bat you know we don't see the, obviously the, the financial situation for these companies but it's just the idea that no one is aggressively aggressively coming at these ideas you know and and i want i wonder if again i sometimes wonder are they but they just don't think it's worth it for some reason 
or the costs, the, the short-term costs are just too high. But you're absolutely right. The technology exists. I mean, a sorting sorting robots completely exists and they can do exactly what needs to be done. And all you need to have is is a guy or girl sitting there feeding it bricks of cards. Like it needs to get the cards from somewhere. That's it. You know, as long as it's being ingested cards, it can it can sort. I I, I would love to see that, man. And and t- to your point, Zakil, that I could see hap- that I'm less cynical about rather than this big sort of like uh, where we have more of a, an open data, you know, um, approach and there's more public information of data. I can see robotics automation. That is something I would I would uh, agree with you that perhaps we'll see more of that, um, and that could be a big boon to the business for sure. However, mm-hmm. that's going to be reserved for just a couple people. Like it's just going to be reserved for TCG Player and you know the Card Kingdoms, but um, and channels or whatnot. But yeah, that that would be super cool, and and I think it would be. I would love to see that. I would I would love to finally see because I mean we all came from the day where it's like oh man we all dreamed of wouldn't it be cool if there was a robot that could just do all this you know and we can basically <laughs> have that now and it's like great let's have that slowly become the the new normal. So and I even bought one about a year ago that I mean it's super super small level and it, I mean it's not it doesn't scale at all but I just am yeah, so fascinated video. with it. Yeah yeah thanks. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I just love good. stuff like that. It's super interesting because just like you said right and, and really I think. In my opinion, I think bulk, and I've said this so many times on the cast, but I still think bulk is among the most profitable, you know, aspects or endeavors in our hobby. It's just so labor intensive, right? Yep. But like you're saying, right, if you could have, I think you could have a seven figure company just by literally sorting bulk and then just doing B2B sales of, hey, you want a thousand Elvish Mystics? All right, here you go. Or you want, I mean, even just really, really simple stuff. So anyway, uh, yeah, that's all. (laughs) I am curious. I mean, we're we're discussing the TCGs. I think it's it feels like an elephant in the room to me. Nobody's mentioned eBay, uh, and I have uh, strong personal thoughts on eBay. But what are you, what are y'all's takes on on eBay five years in the future? Because given the current status right now, I feel like it would be a bit of a disservice not to to at least include them in the conversation. Yeah, I mean, the only reason I don't is because I I never really use them anymore. And so they don't come to mind, but you're absolutely correct. I mean, they, they are the elephant. They're the, they're the third. I mean, they're, they're just as big. Well, they're definitely bigger than TCG, um, obviously. Um, and they're, you know, they're up there with Amazon, but, uh, and tons of magic moves through eBay. My problem personally with eBay is that one, I never started selling there. So it would be a lot for me to get on there and, and start building a, a sales account. Although I, I, I would, if, and if, it, if at a certain point I started cross-posting to different marketplaces, I absolutely would. But uh, at this point, there just hasn't been a need. And also, eBay is just the toxic sort of consumer environment, particularly with magic cards. You know, it's like, at least when you get on, at least when you buy something on Amazon, you know you're going to get it. It's going to be real and it's going to be in the condition described 90% of the time. But with eBay, it's just like, oh my gosh. And then if you're selling on eBay, it's like, Apparently, I, again, I don't know. I don't sell on eBay, but apparently, just eBay is brutal against sellers, and they're all in favor of the buyer. And and just there are the the amount of claims of the fraud claims that that aren't real or that are suspect that happen on eBay is just kind of turns my stomach a little bit. But in five years, to your question, I I think eBay's still going to be around, man. There's just so much business that moves through eBay. You know, it's and it's pretty easy, and it's and it's a pretty simple platform to get on, you know, and there's enough people that just want to sell their random thing in their closet or their garage that I, I don't foresee eBay going anywhere anytime soon. I would agree. And 
I mean, eBay is the generalist marketplace, right? It's not just obviously magic and everything. I've just from what I've seen in the sneaker market of them being the go-to place for sneakers in 2008 to StockX now being, I mean, it was originally a startup that's now, I think, at $4 billion of valuation that just basically was an, it made it a more efficient marketplace. I don't, I don't ever foresee eBay being a proactively innovative company. It's way too big. It's way too bureaucratic. Um, I think it'll always be there, but I, I think really it'll be the general marketplace but i think it's in i think the future is within the sub niches of of each community you know developing their own products and on top of that it's really strange to me that a lot of people i always say that most of magic comes from the gathering aspect rather than the magic so i've seen a, there's been a lot of startups that are coming out um i won't name any names that unfortunately haven't done very well because they're trying to buy community and i don't know it, it feels to me that when you're doing that and you're just pumping branding down people's throats and once again either not being i don't think the silicon valley kind of hyper growth hockey stick kind of <laughs> business mentality works in this hobby just because so many people are attached to i mean people love card kingdom just because you know they sponsor youtube videos that they watch casually and they say oh you know card kingdom will draw on your tokens when you place an order and that's great customer service i mean that's that's something that they've built over years and years and years and the idea of just coming in with this you know, we're super efficient software business to try to, you know, redo the market, I just don't think is ever going to work. So it's just kind of this middle point of you have eBay being this really, really large marketplace that I think is just slowly going to be chipped away off of each of the sub niches doing their own thing. And then on the really, really small startup level, I don't think that they have enough community leverage to actually make it worth it. So I like you said, I, I think it is going to come from a either a power seller or a vendor or a company like that it exists now that kind of morphs into something larger. But again, you know, I, I don't really know, but I, I don't have much faith in eBay being any source of innovation. See, for because you mentioned it too, the, the gathering. I've I personally have found that the the greatest value from eBay is that it is international. It is it basically allows Canadians to get into our market because the current vendors that we're discussing are NA only. And then if you go to Europe, I mean, you have MCM, but eBay, you can, you can reach around the world with eBay. That's predominantly what I do when I see large discrepancies. So for me, I feel as if any of these NA vendors, if they ever get the chops to actually go international, I feel like eBay is able to be kind of the default, almost Craigslist for magic cards in a lot of industries simply because... Uh, it has that logistic infrastructure on a international level, and I think I honestly think if any of these NA vendors can can break into that, they will will give eBay a run for their money. Uh, I don't think it's going to happen, but if any of them can actually do it, I think it would be uh, really interesting to see. You mean as a marketplace or as just vendor business? Because I think CK ships internationally as it is. Uh, I'm not sure. I know they ship to Australia. I'm not sure about like they de they definitely ship internationally. Yeah, they oh. they they just charge you. You get charged a hefty, and then they they say they're not responsible for customs and. Whatnot. Yeah, so I mean, you still get hit with a lot of things. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know. I feel like that's that's the potential there. I feel like eBay is very delicate. I think the biggest thing is that the the difficulty for getting Canadians into the NA marketplace is is predominantly what I go by, in especially in terms of selling. Most of the people that I've interacted with who, who are competent with MTG Finance, who use eBay, not to, to bash anybody who does it in the USA, but most of the ones that I've personally interacted with have been sourced in Canada and they just want to sell their cards to the larger market. 
Oh, for sure. I'm actually curious to what you're speaking on. I'm curious what you guys think about the more global marketplace as we've obviously become much more interconnected, um, particularly in the magic community and in the finance community. That's still a big gap. And for there's obvious logistical issues and, you know, local, regional and and rules that exist that cause some of those some of those some spaces between us. But we're much more interconnected. I'm wondering how all of the things that we've been talking about, what you guys think, how it applies to global a global perspective and international. And if you think any of this, you know, could somebody in Europe kind of bring territories together or somehow help lace these these issues together on a global level? I think card market could. I think card market is a really, really efficient marketplace. I mean, granted, like it, it, it's kind of difficult. And just from my perspective, I think it's just kind of difficult because each region like does business and kind of operates slightly differently. Like I would say Japan is by far the most efficient uh, I mean, business culture in the world, just as far as like their grading is so, so specific. Their sales, like I get orders from Japan in like two days, right? Their entire system is set up to just completely innovate. But I think that card market has a marketplace structure that would already work if they decided to expand. Obviously, there's some bottleneck issues with regards to customs and, you know, all that stuff. The additional tariffs and stuff that have been placed within the past couple of years does not help at all. But you know, to answer your question, I don't, I don't actually know, especially for the foreseeable future. Just kinds of, kind of makes it a bit difficult. I, I want to, and I'll, and I'll have Chris. You can answer this question, but I, I also think the future of the LGS model also is important in this equation because the manufacturing source and the distributor source that is Wizards obviously still wants to promote that LGS affiliation and have that, have that business that has the relationship with the players, but. If I was to say, if I was to pick one company that I think could do it, it would be Card Market. But again, how that actually happens from a legality perspective and and logistics is is something that they need to obviously take on. Yeah, on my end, I just don't believe bureaucracy will ever allow them to. I, I make it. Pro- and that's fair. That's very fair. Um, call it what you want. I mean, I think the reason why this arbitrage exists, it's the different people can shout at me for this. It's the equivalent to like paying the neighbor's 16-year-old to mow your lawn $20 kind of under the table. We're not going to tell Uncle Sam about it because it's, look, it's 20 bucks. Here you go. Thank you for mowing my lawn, you know, job done. Versus mm-hmm. having to go to the bank and say, look, I paid him $20. Uh, I know I have to pay taxes here, here, and here. Uh, oh, at the end of the day, you know, kid next door ends up with like eight out of the $20. It was probably worth it to him to begin with, but though that bureaucratic structure will just everybody wants everyone wants their bit of the pie and i think by the time they're done with you especially coming out of the eu uh with so many different countries like in the u.s we're lucky we have states not countries i don't think the eu would be positioned for that i could see unless you're coming out of one base european country but i don't i don't know how mcm is structured so i don't know about that i can't speak to that I would give much more credit to a Japanese vendor coming into the USA. And much to what Zakil said, uh, I think they are far more organized. Uh, just uh, in general, uh, a more competent marketplace, which I, I definitely respect. And I, I love buying from them because I always know what I'm going to get. But I'm, I would be very, very skeptical of it 
despite the opportunities for those of us kind of at our level, I think anybody who's going to be doing it and declaring it internationally as this is what we do for a business, I think they will just get destroyed by taxes and fees uh, unless things change. What are your thoughts, Tarkin? It's yeah, I'm I'm kind of where you are, uh, Zakil. I, I I don't know either. I, although my intuition would be MCM, but I think it is the same problems that you said, Chris. Is is just I, I don't know that the legality and the bureaucracy of all would would even make sense to try and go for something like that. Um, you know, I've always thought, what if MCM came to the U.S.? But uh, I feel like it's it's probably an, a dream that won't be realized because I think there's just too too difficult. For them to to marry the two, I mean, I don't think it would be that difficult for them just to fire up a U.S. entity and have a U.S. office, and then you've got the MCM brand. You just apply that same their same system and approach, but cost structure is different. All the time, you know, I I don't know if we would see the same MCM that we enjoy from Europe if it came here and attempted to compete or do interesting things here. So yeah, it's tough. I, I I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, I, I think you're right. The Japanese have it down, but they're so insulated and they so just do their own thing. <laughs> I doubt they would have any interest in, you know, trying to do something on a more global scale. Mm. But I, I think that, I don't know. I just, the more we see um, things becoming interconnected globally, I feel like it's inevitable that there's going to be more of a global focus in some way in this in this industry, and I can't pinpoint exactly what that is yet. But somebody's going to do something that's kind of interesting that sort of bridges this, you know. And, and despite all of the hurdles of, of stuff and logistics, I, I feel like whether whether it's a, a communication platform like a Discord that somehow makes things easier in some way, or again, there's some sort of distribution method that allows for ease between overseas transactions or something. I, I don't know, but um, I, I feel like there's some, something's going to happen. We're, we just, we're constantly becoming more interconnected and I think magic um, inevitably will become part of that in some way, hmm. more so than it is now. So, okay. So, I mean, we kind of touched on this from the, the buy list here. So, and not, I mean, you've mentioned you've, you've been doing MSG Finance since 2014. So I, I think, I think it's clear, honestly, from the discussion we've had here already uh, and, and prior to this, uh, did you have any form of like e-commerce experience selling things online prior to 2014? Or did you just kind of like learn it all on the job, like within the industry confines? Yeah, I mean, my, mar- my background was in, um, is primarily in the film and TV business, uh, mostly in marketing, in digital marketing. So I had no <laughs> formal or like, you know, e-commerce experience whatsoever um and it's all it's all been learning through this industry uh and i think that if you're not selling online you're just doing a disservice to yourself and we, when we talk about future thinking um, and what's coming down the road i think that more and more business you're going to have to have some kind of online e-commerce component if you're going to make it mm-hmm. but yeah no i, I don't, don't have a formal background in it but i definitely you know again um, going back to what we were talking about, systems thinking and fulfillment and, and fixing inefficiencies, you know, I said to myself, okay, LGS model is inefficient for what I want to do. And at, <laughs> at the time it was, I, I want to be able to travel a lot, uh, which I was doing. So I said, the LGS model is not going to work for me. I don't want to be stuck in one place. How do I solve for that? You know, how mm-hmm. do I apply? Like, um, there's, this, there's this thing in a concept in engineering called the separation of concerns. 
you might have be familiar with this or have heard of it, but mm-hmm. you know, it's like how how do you optimally you know allocate resources and and, and min- minimize waste and whatnot? Um, so it's like okay, I need to be doing X Y Z role. How do I fulfill the other needs from a business perspective? You know, so I hired out freelance contractors and and I and I started doing drop shipping and and I just started sort of implemented these things that and and all of this rely, heavily relying obviously on the e commerce stuff. So mm-hmm. I just kind of dove into that. And I started selling on TCG Player just originally it was just to kind of out cards, but um, this is kind of a funny story. Uh, I was leveraging TCG in the early days. I leveraged TCG Player primarily for the buyouts that I was doing. Which, uh, <laughs> before I go into the story, I will tell you I do not condone buyouts. I think they are very, very, very bad thing to attempt. Despite. The story I'm about to tell, but um, I don't think anybody in the industry, I don't think people should be going, oh man, that's cool, buyouts, yeah, like they don't usually, they usually do not work and I don't recommend them. The reason why they happened to work when I was doing them was because I was, there was less products coming out at the time. This is around the, it's, I started with Dragons of Tarkir and I focused strictly on foils. And at the time, buyouts were not as, they were prevalent. Again, everything was smaller. So finance community was smaller. And when buyouts happened, yeah, they were a big deal, but it was was much, much fewer. There were much fewer of them. So I was going in and no one was buying out low supply foils. And what I would do is I'd go on stocks and say, okay, uh, whatever card, uh, I don't know, some random, a Signet or something has gained 2% over the past month. And it keeps on slightly ticking up. I never cared about big numbers. I cared about the small, tiny micro increases. I said, okay, that's showing demand. And there's like four copies left on TCG player. And there's an aggregate across all the e-commerce platforms. There's like 20. So all I need to do is as long as my cost basis averages out to this and I can get a 20% in, you know, profit off it, off of buy list, not retail, but buy list, then I'm good. And I did foils also because I do have a. I, I do believe uh, ethically it's unethical to buy out non-foils because I think that you are sh- you are stripping people from the opportunity to play the game. Uh, at, in my mind at the time, I found foils to be a luxury product, so I kind of rationalized myself and I felt less bad about it. But I said I don't feel comfortable doing this to non-foils because then yeah, some kid literally can't play with a signet because I've tried to like make money off of them. So, but more so than that. From a from a, uh, a economics perspective, it made sense. I'm like, okay, there's no supply of this stuff. I just need the buy list to tick up. And at the time, buyouts again were r- more rare. And well, they're kind of rare now, but they kind of, they kind of became a thing around 2016, 17, 18, and they kind of died out. But in the early in the early days, like 15, 2015, they weren't happening that frequently. So buy lists would simply adjust. Like if I bought out a competitive foil, Star City would just raise the price because it was gone, and they wanted to have it. And I would buy out random game day promos and I would buy out this stuff and the buy list. And all I needed was 20% and I was living off of credit. I was doing, you know, I would need to make money off of the credit. Um, I didn't even care about the cash, though it, I was successful with, with cash uh, for many of these. But And, and I, that's why I leveraged TCG Player at the time. Um, and actually, this is the first time I've really told this story. I, I The people, some of my friends in, in, in QS knew about this a long time ago, but I don't, I don't share it often, but enough time has passed that I, and I, and I'm not, Uh-oh. I'm not involved in this side of stuff anymore that much <laughs> that I can share the story. But yeah, I mean, back then, you know, that, that was a, a way of doing it. And so I leveraged TCG player to, to have a price point that was, that was really high so that the price would, would jump and like you see on stocks and whatnot. And, and, and it would, it would work. I don't think anybody should do that nowadays. I don't think they, it would work the same way that it did back then. You know, 
the things that I tried to do when I was starting, I, I, I tried to look for ways that, um, you know, look in areas that other people aren't looking. And, and I guess if, if the takeaway from this conversation, ultimately the very end of this, that, um, you know, in my experience that what, what I've had happen with my life with magic and the industry is that, you know, you have to be looking where other people are not looking. You have to be doing things like, you know, Chris, you're looking at supply dynamics and that's great. Like people haven't really been doing that in finance. You know, you got to be looking at in areas that people aren't really focusing on and seeing where opportunities could be. So anyways, back to your e-commerce thing. That's how I got involved <laughs> in CCG Player. I then, I started on that. Um, and then from there, you know, kind of used it more traditionally after I did the, after I was, did all those shenanigans. I was just selling on it um, very small level, just as a way of, you know, an additional way of outing cards. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, all of my experience from then on just came from from learning the platforms. And, and, you know, TCG Player is the driver of my business. It's where I primarily sell on. You have to have an LGS to be on Amazon. And uh, I already mentioned earlier my issues with eBay. Um, and until I have to be forced to use it, which probably at some point I will, um, I just don't want to be on that platform. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's kind of my background with e-commerce. <laughs> yeah, no, that's honestly when you when you have that discussion, I see a lot of similarities, at least in, in my own learning curve so far, which is uh, it, it's interesting to to definitely see. Now, I know, now you mentioned this, that um, now more than ever, sites need to have an e-commerce platform. And uh, I believe that my sentiments on, on LGS is, is definitely more harsh than most. But moving forward, especially given the, the current pandemic, the interaction between particularly just setting up an inventory or setting up a website for these local LGSs um, because uh, something that I, I've actually taken away from uh, another uh, finance podcast was that uh, as soon as inventory is pulled off, is is not listed, it's not listed for sale, it is essentially out of the market. And so I kind of firmly believe that most LGSs have actually removed all of their inventory from the market because they are not listing it on, on online platforms. Uh, do you think that LGSs will, well, first of all, will they... Uh, as this uh, pandemic kind of plays out, will they move towards more of that e-commerce element? Uh, And even if you you don't think they do, if they did, how do you think that would kind of affect the market itself? Yeah, that's that's an interesting thought. Um, I certainly think that they're going, many of them need to in order to survive with what's going on. Um, I don't know how many of them are going to survive or going to make it through this if they don't. Regarding how much inventory is quote unquote offline, that's tough to say because a lot of those stores sell those cards to their local player base. So they're they're on the marketplace. They're just, you know, they're they're just being sold. Now if the question really becomes how much of that stock is sitting in their where in their back, you know, the back of their shop not being sold and or not being listed, right? Because if we assume that inventory that they're selling in store is getting in the hands of players, many of those players might buy list them or what you know, they're 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 getting churned through the market in some way, even if it's not captured online or always captured. The amount of stock that's sitting, you know, rotting away in their in their in their back stock, how much of that is going to get online? I don't I don't know. Like I don't think there's enough inventory that doesn't eventually make it online that's going to cause like I don't think you're going to see $20 Tarmogoyfs because all of a sudden 
30,000 LGSs list their Tarmogoyfs. Like I, I, I don't think there's, I don't think there's a significant enough of, of inventory that's not being exchanged or that doesn't make its way through eventually to some e-commerce platform. Cause that's what basically what we're talking about is stuff that's stuck in some stores backstock. And there's a lot of bulk. <clears throat> I mean, I've been to stores that they're like, yeah, I'm just sitting on just pallets of bulk that I just never went through, you know? <laughs> so maybe on the bulk level, but I don't think that's what stores are going to do. I think mm -hmm. stores are going to end up listing the Tarmogoyfs and the things that they know uh, they're going to want to sell. And I think they're going to sell them locally. I don't think we're going to see a, a massive surge of people, of, of stores during the pandemic move to like TCG player and, and national mm -hmm. e-commerce. I think they'll definitely have websites for lo local sales and maybe even regional, but I don't foresee them going to something like TCG player. And I don't estimate you're going to see a trend, a price trend, prices trending in a different way because all of a sudden there's this hidden inventory that suddenly gets listed. I don't estimate that's going to happen, no. But I do think I do think stores are going to have to get online. I do think uh, if they don't during a pandemic, they're more likely to die. Uh, and, but I don't think it's going to affect prices that much. What do you think the LGS landscape looks like a year from now? Or even as, I mean, through the current pandemic and then as we hopefully sooner rather than later exit that, what do you think are the obvious major challenges facing uh, the LGS and, and what they need to do to, I mean, frankly, stay alive or, you know, remain competitive? I definitely think Wizards wants stores. And it's funny because we have to happen to have a pandemic uh, that I think aligns with what Wizards wants here with the, their vision of the LGS. But I think Wizards wants what you see as a WPN premium, which would be sort of that Mox boarding house style shop. That's what I think they would like to see. And that's what I think LGSs are going to evolve into more and more. I think the clubhouse days of the 90s and the 2000s and, and whatnot, I think those are quickly dying. I think those are going to be the majority of the stores you see die out during this uh, global event. The number I heard from some LGS people was 30 per, upward of 30% of stores are going to close. Uh, that's pretty aggressive. That's pretty nuts. That's a lot. I don't, I don't know if... I think that feels a little high, but as I said this in the Discord, I think it's not unrealistic. I mean, there's a lot of LGSs that are just kind of getting by. And uh, and they're kind of clubhouses started by people who are into, into games and into this stuff, and they're doing it as a means of of satisfying their hobby and, and hanging out with their local community and whatnot. But I think that sort of WPN premium style, that Mox boarding house or that um, sort of hybrid cafe, gaming cafe, coffee house, we offer a variety of things. That's sort of um, craft retail approach to the LGS. That's what I think you're going to see happen um, in the next one to five years. That definitely means there's going to be fewer of fewer LGSs because that's not an easy thing to build out. But this sort of clubhouse, the clubhouse days, I think those are going to be few and far between. I think those mm -hmm. are those are slowly dying out. Mm -hmm. Does that, does that basically answer? Um, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about what do you guys think? I think the same. I, like you said, I think there's a lot of. I mean, to be frank, there's a lot of inefficient businesses that are open. That, I mean, there's a huge separation between the mock sporting style, mock sporting houses of the world, and your clubhouse corner store that has 
half of you know, whatever, a hundred thousand dollars of inventory sitting behind the shelf that they haven't moved in several years. Mm-hmm. But no, I, I mean, I, I think that there's a huge opportunity for them. Like, and they don't need to necessarily make TCG player accounts and, and move online, but just I think as opposed to holding inventory and hoping that foot traffic is going to drive your sales, I think this is a time that you're going to have to use, you know, explore other ways, even that if, you know, even if that remains within the regional level of exploring through social media or, you know, even just going onto eBay or whatnot. But like you're saying, you know, especially it's stores that brick and mortar stores have a lot of overhead because whether it's board games or whether it's singles themselves, I think the original model of having cards tucked away in shelves or having cards tucked away in boxes doesn't allow you to sell as many cards because the customer has to go digging for them. And when your model is that and the customers can't come in and dig, it forces you to adapt. But no, I mean, I have faith. I think there's a lot of businesses that will, you know, turn a, you know, turn this time and, and um, figure out a way to make it happen. But on top of that, I, I know that a lot of small businesses and a lot of LGSs already were semi unprofitable before this. And that, unfortunately, I think this is only going to you know be a bit worse or make it a bit worse. All that said, I, I think it's important to reinforce something you mentioned earlier, Zakil, about, you know, magic is about the gathering. Hmm. The reason why LGS is, in my opinion, it, this kind of goes back to a couple of things you were saying, but yeah, every, everything about the gathering component of magic is what makes the game as good as it is. You know, as much as I talk about systems thinking and cards or widgets and all that, you know, the reason why I'm so passionate about this industry is because just like you guys, I started as a player based on community, the people involved, right? So, you know, I think you actually mentioned this. Any entity that comes in and just tries to say, just tries to math out the business is not going to succeed. And that's why I think LGSs will never go. You know, people like having an LGS and they like brands that take care of them and they they feel some sort of relationship with, you know? So mm-hmm. I think if you're going to come into the industry and you want to participate, you have to have that component. It could be as simple as, you know, you know, how the relationships you build through discords or whatnot. But if you just try to come in and math everything out and you try to build a business off of that, like a real business, I don't think you're going to be successful. And I, I think, like you said, we've seen some, some cases of that already where, you know, you got to build something with some heart in the game um, and that has that community component. And that's why I, I am not of the mindset that the LGS is ever going to go away. I just think it's going to evolve. And your and to, to your point about the the inventory, you know, unfortunately, I think that this will end up, you know, an event like this pandemic is going to kind of weed out those people that are too much on the passion and not enough on the business, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you can't really be too extreme on either side. And and yeah, the guys that don't, you know, the, the people that don't really have enough of a business sense with this and approach, they're, they're not going to make it, you know, sitting on inventory and, and just not generating sales, not figuring out how to service customers in different ways is not going, it's just not going to work. So I think that those vendors that don't make it, there could be a lot of inventory that ends up on the marketplace, but man, you'd be surprised as to the number of these, of these stores that they, if they close down, they're just going to keep their cards, you know, or they're going to keep a chunk of their stuff. You know, not every, not every single person with a lot of inventory just wants to fire sell it all if they have to close, you know. And a lot of that stuff ends up being done in deals that are very local, 
Uh, a lot of, you know, rather than it going to one large entity, it might get split across several, we'll call them backpack type of grinder finance guys or girls or whatever, you know. Um, so I just don't know that, what I don't expect to see is like, oh my gosh, there's these Facebook ads and 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 eBay listings and Amazon listings just riddled with stores just dumping inventory. I, I just don't foresee that happening. I think that inventories that stores that do close are either some of it's going to be kept, some of it's going to be part, most of it's going to be parsed out locally, and a lot of it's going to be parsed out in chunks. Right? Mm-hmm. I just, I, I, I just <laughs> as as much, as much as a as a buyer, as much as I would love to see like just mountains of $50,000 collections just being lofted left and right. I don't think that's going to happen. I think if those started showing up, though, we would understand why they, they went up. Sure. If you're trying <laughs> Absolutely. to sell a collection, you don't do it that way. If yeah. you're trying to sell a collection of any amount of cards, you don't. That is incredibly uh, an unwise out. Right. As far as my take on it, I, I just think the LGS market is oversaturated as is. I know uh, a lot of people in, in small towns think of LGSs as being the, the grassroots entry into a game. Uh, and I, I do kind of understand that. But at the same time, I was playing Magic for two, two and a half years before I ever went to an LGS. Mm-hmm. I don't, I understand once I went to an LGS, I was like, wow, this is amazing. This is like Nerds Unite. I love it. But I mean, I was playing in a Starbucks. I was playing on a gym floor. I, I think you can arrange. I don't think the LGS uh, and disagree. I don't think it's as essential as most people perceive it to be in this industry. And I think that oversaturation combined with a lack of business savvy is going to catch up with them here. And I, I honestly think they've been coasting for the better part of a decade. But I'm a, I'm a computer. I just want to add also that I... As I'm talking about this more from a business perspective, and I have a lot of empathy for store owners. And, you know, obviously, this is really difficult times. And I don't want to that my perspective and the conversation that we're having isn't at all an attack on, on you know, the individual people who are running these businesses, more just kind of a commentary on the general market. Because I know how hard it is, right? It's not I don't wish failure on any business. Absolutely. No, you know, the, these kind of conversations are just trying to take an objective look at things. Um, you know, I don't want any business to go under. I don't want any anyone's livelihood to be at stake. Of course not. And I, I, so I grew up in LGSs and I love, I love the idea of an LGS. And when I was a kid, you know, my brother and I had this sort of like childhood ambition of, oh, one day it'd be cool to have an LGS. We thought about opening one at some time. So I have nothing but, um, you know, my heart is with LGS owners. Uh, that said, you know, as, as you said, as a business person and just looking at the environment that we're in, you know, if I, if I had to be objective, these are sort of like, you know, the way that I would, that I'm looking at it. I'm just heartless. <laughs> I, I, always, I always try and I, I don't know. Uh, I, I guess I say always, I always try to think of things logically and just uh, looking at the way the industry is set up right now. I just see. As you, you know, what's interesting though, um, Chris, this, cause you, you mentioned this about how you didn't grow up in LGS and this is something that I think about a lot. And, and I'm sorry if this is a little tangential, but I am curious what you guys think about how the future generation of Magic players, how their relationship with the game and, and the actual cards will be. Because a lot of the value in the secondary market, particularly for vintage, is because old school guys and girls who grew up playing with alpha cards, they have, you know, you didn't have arena, you didn't have a million things coming at you at once, you just had your collection of cards, right? And over time, 
every generation's relationship with the game has been different and we have more and more products. And so my sense is that as the game evolves in 50, we'll say 25 years, you know, the, the, the next three generations, two generations down, are they going to have the same relationship with physical cards and that same nostalgia stickiness as we may have or as people before us have, you know, particularly, obviously, the old school players like love that that segment of cards, you know, so and I, I don't know about that. You know, it's something that's really interesting to me, and I'd like to get your perspective on it. You know, are are the are you know is the five year old so the kid that's born today and that's going to eventually play Magic in thirty years or twenty years? Is he going to care as much about his collection? You know, when Magic's probably evolved digitally, and there's a million other video games out there, and and, and collectibles, and this and that. You know, when his attention is divided, is he going to care as much as we care, or as the people before us care about, you know, the, the, these cards? And and he's going to have the same relationship because a lot of what drives, uh, particularly in old school, a lot of what drives the collectability is the nostalgia for it, right? And if a kid who doesn't really care about a black lotus outside of like, oh wow, it's like, it's like me and an old painting, right? It's like I, I, I obviously I know that historical and cultural value of of a, of a da vinci but do i have the same relationship with it to it as someone who either was born in the arts or, or you know grew up in that world we'll say as, as that's a rough comparison but i think you know where i'm going with this like i don't really have that same relationship will the future generations care as well? that's a tough question so i actually i released a video that kind of talked about my thoughts about this last week magic in five years uh on my channel and i think it depends on how the branding develops and i think that's one of the reasons magic and the whole netflix movie uh that's coming out is kind of aiming to do because i want to quickly talk about the relationship that people have with pokemon and Yu-Gi-Oh, and bring that back to magic and it's interesting because the early 2000s tv shows are essentially what built the branding for those companies and pokemon is so much larger than a trading card game Mm-hmm. Yu-Gi-Oh is a trading card game, but it's also this large media empire as well. Magic mm-hmm. doesn't have that. Like Magic is just a game. And mm-hmm. it's interesting to me because Magic is equally as large, or it's larger than Yu-Gi-Oh, a bit small. The, the game is big, larger than Pokemon, but the brand is smaller than yep. Pokemon. And I think to answer what you're saying, will they have the same connection to Black Lotus and Lord of Atlantis and all these things? No, probably not. Uh, and I think the reserve list also has kind of an impact on that. But do I think that they could have an equally genuine relationship to, I don't know whether it's the Gatewatch or some branding that is happening now mm-hmm. or within the yep. next five years that will be nostalgic for them? Possibly that's up to Wizards and up for them to create good quality content that will you know last and, and have lasting effects on the brand. But I, I do think, right, I think the movie, I think, I mean, Arena is obviously going to be huge, but I, I really do think it it's I think it's media. I think media is going to control the future narrative of that company, because, again, right, if as the 90s, I mean, in 30 years from now, sure, Black Lotus and Friends will be really, really expensive. But the branding and the, the future of magic is going to be built on what's happening now and, you know, over the past five in the next five years, I think, if that makes any sense. Oh, no, totally. No, it does. Personally, I, I think inevitably they they will not have the same nostalgic uh, interaction that that we will uh, simply because and I think this and I could actually consider this uh, a flaw in what I perceive to be uh, Watsi's current strategy. But they're gonna I, I'm gonna notice a trend here. Follow the money, and I think MTG Arena is far more profitable 
Uh, and if it's not now, I think digital uh, just will. I, this is why like this is e-commerce versus brick and mortar in my mind. It's always more cost effective to, to do it this way. That said, I think something, I mean, you mentioned Pokemon. I think something brilliant that Nintendo did was they, is particularly thinking of Pokemon Go, I mean, they incorporate the gathering part into that game. You, you still need to interact with people. And I think the more you're able to keep that element of, I don't want to say forced human interaction, but I, I think it's a, a plus. Uh, I think if you're able to retain that element in your brand, uh, I think paper will, will always have some form of nostalgia because when you're in person with somebody, you don't want to be, you're, you're not doing battleships where you have two laptops against each other and you're playing arena. You, you want to play tabletop. Right. Uh, so I think as long as Wizards wants the gathering, like wants to have people sitting across from each other and, and doing it this way, uh, I, I think it's really up to them and how they, they balance, I guess, the balance sheet. You uh, know what's, or go, pardon me, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. You know what's a great example of this is I was not uh, in the magic scene in the magic scene when Chandelar came out, but everyone who played Chandelar, they're like, well, late night PC video game or I think like <laughs> PS One or something, like raves and raves and raves about how much they enjoyed it, and that's the same thing for people who played Pokemon Red or Pokemon Go mm -hmm. or now the Detective mm -hmm. Pikachu movie, yeah. and I yeah. think those ancillary products are what is going to create that lasting branding effect because you know they can release an rpg you know chandelier rpg today and you'll have some subset of the population will want to play it and then by virtue of that you'll have people who are interested in rpgs that will now get interested in the magic i totally agree i mean they have a moba that was supposed to be released by now i thought you know like this mobile online battle arena version where you play planeswalkers and then they have a mmorpg that's that that's in, been in development or supposed to be releasing so they're clearly trying to create these products. I don't know why the multi or the um the filmed or animated content thing has just been languishing forever. I mean, it's not just when they announced the movie. It's like how why is it taking so long? Just even an animated series, you know. But I, I guess you know at the time, you know, it, it must not have made sense, or the brand wasn't big enough at the time, or something. But yeah, I, I totally agree with you, Ezekiel. I think that. Um, as far as just brand, you know, relationship with the brand goes, that's going to be key. Um, I always just wonder, you know, strictly having so many more options, you know, is someone just going to care about physical cards the same way that we care? And you might be right, Zakil. I mean, it might just boil down to they, they look at a card and they go, oh, man, I remember when I would, you know, go online and watch the cartoon every week or whatever, you know, and, and that that's enough to keep them invested, you know? I mean, I don't know how if you've paid attention to graded and sealed of the other card games this year, but they've just absolutely exploded in terms of nostalgia. Like the early 2000s Pokemon cards are like ten to $20,000 for PSA 10s. And Magic doesn't have that, right? We don't crack legions for, you know, some mm -hmm. random foil to grade it and based on nostalgia outside of the reserve list. Magic, I would argue Magic isn't actually that much, uh, you know, is probably the least collectible card game just in terms of that, like you're saying, that pure nostalgia value. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we'll see. But speaking of the movie, uh, I know that one of your or your main interest or one of your main, one of your many facets is affiliated with the movie industry. So how did that come to be? Because I know you have an IMDb page. Yeah, I um, so my background is in the the film and TV business. Um, 
I started off working for a film producer named Tyler Perry, who um, is an African-American. Yeah, he's an African-American film producer um, as an assistant and then made my way out to to L.A. where I live currently and was working. I worked for a couple different production companies, um, Skydance being a big one. They did like uh, the Terminator Genesis movie and they did um, did a variety of of big sci-fi budget stuff. Um, and then worked for an, an ad agency doing digital marketing for FX networks and um, Fox and a variety of other groups. But yeah, and then, you know, was the, the, the original vision for myself was eventually to evolve into either um, working in the corporate, you know, continue growing in the corporate side of the industry. But, but really long term, I hope to be in like uh, independent producing of uh, Primarily feature films, but you know, also maybe um, you know, you know, scripted television kind of series and whatnot. So yeah, I um, started when when I broke off uh, to do magic full time. Uh, that allowed me much more available time to you know continue to pursue that sort of independent producing projects. And so, you know, I've been involved with a few um, few indie films. A couple of them are being released in the next year or two. Um, so yeah, I, 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 that's kind of where I, that's, that's the, the, my, my OG world. Um, and I, I always keep my sort of one foot in that, um, despite magic taking up the bulk of my time, but that's, yeah, that's, that's where I'm from. That's awesome. Yeah. 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 yeah it's, it's interesting because there's many parallels between the sort of, what's a good word here? kind of the the the, the gorilla running gun style of indie producing and sort of the gorilla running gun style of building um, a magic business that's you know not strictly LGS retail based right building relationships and partnerships and finding a good project is like finding a, you know a good collection and and finding new markets and and things like that so there's a lot of a lot a lot of parallels there um but uh, yeah, yeah, I'm always happy to answer any questions people have about in indie the indie film world. It's a it's an interesting business, and it's it's while it's bigger and a lot more, I would say, uh, relatively speaking, a lot more complex than TCG world. Um, <laughs> it's it's there are a lot of similarities. So um, it's very entrepreneurial, which I like, and um, obviously it changes all the time. So yeah, if you were to point to one skill or trait that you've learned in your experience in the movie industry that has been beneficial to you on the magic side but also just kind of in your life what would that one thing be relationship building 100 percent. so you have kind of three motivations in magic you have the player you have the hobbyist entrepreneur type then you have someone that wants to build something and when i decided to jump into magic i went i'm gonna try and build something uh, the only way that in my experience you can successfully do that is if you build quality, meaningful relationships with people in the industry. And it's the same thing in the, the film business. You know, random Joe Schmo on the street, let's say you had a million bucks a kill and you called up a major Hollywood studio or agency and you said, hey, I got a million dollars. They would go, that's cool. Um, we're going to charge you $3 million for the client that you want, like this big name actor that you want to use. And they're going to overcharge you because they don't know who you are. There's a million people with, with, with money that's coming at them, right? It's, it's only because. If you, if you if you had a strong relationship and you knew somebody and it was meaningful, then you can actually do more business. And the same thing with magic. It's like, you know, you can try and just say, hey, I want to buy at this price, right? But you're not going to 
unless you develop good quality relationships with with larger entities, with customers, you're not going to be able to to really succeed. And you're not going to get the kinds of deals that are going to help elevate your business, which the reality is, is magic is extremely capital intensive and requires a lot of cash if you're going to really try and grow it. And the only way you're going to be able to level up each time is if, you know, you're either either find opportunities that help push you there or you work with people that can help elevate you right so hands down that the only the, the only reason i would say that i've been able to like i said put together what i've been able to put together is because the people that i met along the way and doing what i could to foster genuine meaningful quality uh, not just business but interpersonal relationships and marrying those two together so um, and then it's 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 critical in the in the film and the media business, absolutely critical. You know, they say deals are made uh, over drinks at a bar, and that's true. You know, so two people sit down, two Hollywood agents will sit down, and they'll just be you know, you know, telling swapping stories and laughing over a beer, and the next thing you know, they've put together a movie project. So that's just definitely what it is. You know, and 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 I vended so I vended three GPs last year um with a full size island booth and you know unless you dev- have trust of your neighboring you know the, the other vendors in the room and unless unless you are you know honor your word so let's say you know if i put a card on my buy list and i say i'm paying 10 dollars for it if 95 or whomever it is walks over and they drop a 100 of them in my lap and they say you're buying these right and i i say yes right? You got to do those things because if I burn them, that's going to get around and nobody's going to want to do business with me, right? So, and and I don't mean that on just a transactional level, but it, just just building goodwill and trust amongst, you know, your vendor community and your your customer community and, and everybody at all the different levels. It's just imperative. So yeah, that's that's easily the standout skill. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, that's like you're saying, that's much more than business that's you know the relationships that you have obviously at work or and it's been my experience just in the seattle tech scene that applying into you know the the dark hole of of resume applications <laughs> doesn't usually mm-hmm. work it's often through a referral of someone that you know or uh mm-hmm. you know a friend of a friend who can you know point you in the right direction and um, it's not you know so, some of it is difficult you know you're not going to be able to walk into channel fireball and sit down with the ceo and just have drinks right it's that that kind of stuff is takes time or is not is not necessarily easy but you can always there's so many communities and one thing i love about magic is because of this community focus it's it's not as hard as people think to go out there and build relationships and 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 those entry level we'll call them entry level relationships lead to bigger relationships you know you know because i i did some good business or got to know this small local vendor Oh, he just happens to know this person and I do something with them or we get to know each other. And then that person happens to know somebody in Europe who's the largest German vendor. And guess what? I'm now doing, you know, a five figure deal with a German power seller who's the, the, you know, happens to crack hundreds of thousands of boxes. And I would have never known that person if it wasn't for this interconnection of, of the network that we have. And magic is beautiful. This community is beautiful in the sense that it's very, very open. You know, you go to any of these discords, I mean, take you know, QS or any of these groups that have people from all over the world. And, you know, if you, if you do it genuinely and you, you know, you're not just like, Oh, what can I, what can you do for me? But you, you really are passionate about the community and you and meeting these people and you're trying to do something and they, and you do good business, you know, you'll, you'll end up 
networking just basically you know and and it'll work but it's it's so important it's so critical i mean i can't tell you how many opportunities you get when you expand your network um particularly in magic it's 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 super important you know if i if i need it's not just cards but if i you know if i'm looking for a contractor for something you know i have people i can reach out to for referrals or, or this and that you know people are willing to help you whereas if 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 not then you might just get ignored you know mm -hmm. we talked uh previous to recording just kind of about the impact that the pandemic is having on the movie industry mm -hmm. how would you summarize that and what does that look like just because from an outsider looking in obviously we're seeing the netflixes of the world are exploding in terms of stock price and they're getting all kinds of new members disney plus is there and it doesn't look like movie theaters are going to be open up at least at full capacity for quite a while and i would imagine that's going to impact box office but you know as someone who's in there what what do you what is that like what's going on now i mean well from the production standpoint it's Obviously, everything is shut down. It's very difficult for the large studios, you know, the conglomerate companies like the Disney's and the Warner Brothers and whatnot. They have the resources to weather this out. So I don't anticipate you're going to like this isn't going to kill the movie business or the content in the business this is a film content business. Um, that said, you know, AMC, you know, filed for was was talking about filing for bankruptcy. However, you know, the PR on that looks like, oh, a chain is going under. But really what might be going on is they're trying to get government money, right? They're trying to get some government subsidy. Mm -hmm. So don't be so quick to th think that these companies are necessarily as, it's as grim as it may seem. However, that said, uh, yeah, I don't anticipate productions, the big studio productions, if things continue going the way they are with the pandemic, we probably won't see anything going back into production until early next year they'll be lucky if it's you know late this year mm. on the indie side productions are still happening they have a lot of rules they have to follow but people are still making it happen um, but there is definitely you know the distributors and, and the buyers and the people that distribute this content whether it be via streaming service or video on demand or even dvds which are still a thing believe it or not in <laughs> um, in particularly overseas and foreign territories uh, there is a huge appetite and they're starving for content um, because typically what happens is, you know, um, when you have these th things like um, Sundance and the Cannes Film Festival, and while there's a big glamour component with like, you know, big stars, really what they are is they're film markets where distributors and buyers are going to see what is being put into production and what they can start you know, making deals to buy so they can fill their content pipelines. And, you know, when you have productions just stop for almost basically a year, well, now you have to fill that somehow. So there is a big appetite for content. So, so the need for content isn't going anywhere. What content, as far as the broader picture of, you know, what content's going to look like and, and what the platforming will be looking like, um, I can tell you, obviously, Netflix is an animal. It's not going anywhere. Streaming is a thing. Uh, movie theaters are still going to that's that that type of exhibition will always exist similar to like trading cards it's like why would you just stop if it's something is a cash cow why would you just stop that right like there's no reason not to have a movie theater experience because it's it's a it's a revenue stream that works and it's proven and it still generates tons of money so the type of content, and you, obviously you can see this, it's like, it's all tentpole, massive, big blockbuster style stuff, Marvel and these sort of big 
action spectacle films. And that's going to continue to be the trend. There's been sort of this resurgence, kind of like in vinyl in the music industry, there's sort of been this resurgence of like going to the movie theater to see sort of indie dramas. Um, so you'll still see a little bit of that, but it's going to be harder and harder to get those into theaters. And it's the theater experience is going to be more of a spectacle driven um, event kind of experience. Mm -hmm. um, what you will be seeing though is um, that's that that's really kind of blowing up is ad driven long form series on platforms like YouTube. So YouTube Red, for example, will start investing in long form like episodic shows, which then are sort of driven by ad revenue from advertisers, right? So basically the transition from traditional network and cable TV, that model is going to shift online. Um, so you'll have a lot more of these digital services that are going to be doing mm. ad-driven uh, content, long-form content. And so, mm. you know, a lot of the independent producers and sort of these companies that are sales companies as well as producers, they're sort of modeling the projects that they produce uh, you know, they're trying to find things that would work that could sort of if imagine like, let's say you you watch a movie and you go, wow, that could eventually be a larger franchise or could be turned into a TV series. That's the kind of sort of thinking that producers are going, OK, what's something that I could put that could eventually be either a it's a feature film, but it's also a pilot. It's like a TV pilot and that could eventually be expanded into a series, um, if that made sense. So yeah, no, uh, that's uh, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of where things are going. Um, but more than ever, the the demand for content is massive. Um, so if you're a content producer, it's 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 interesting because probably in the I would say maybe in the mid two thousands or whatever, it was like distribution is where you want to be, and and you know you want to be selling stuff. And now there's such a need for content that being a content producer and making good quality content that's engaging uh, and developing an audience is very valuable. So I would say we're, we're, we're kind of in a golden era for content producing. And I mean, you can obviously see that with, you know, streaming and just, you know, YouTube influencers and channels and whatnot. It's like, it's kind of a good time to be in the content business, honestly, um, because there's plenty of need. Now, the question becomes, how is that necessarily monetized? And that's a whole, that's a whole different question. You know, it, the days of oh great you know you come up with a cool idea and it's just bought for a lot of money that that's not necessarily the case there's a lot more nuance now uh, but the demand for content is massive and the need for content from just so many platforms is big so do you do you buy into the idea that television is dying because i've heard i've heard so many people from you know kind of different industries and and kind of mm. macro level business talk that uh, television is going the way of the radio Right. Radio used to be one of the primary ways that people received information. Mm -hmm. and then it turned to you know black and white TV and then obviously color TV. What do you think, you know, maybe and maybe this is too large of a time frame, but the next 10 years of television looks like? So I'm assuming you're you mean sort of traditional network TV. Yeah, cable. Correct. Like must yeah, cable, must like sort of like must see TV, Friday nights, you know, sitcoms and things like that. I would probably agree with that assessment that it's probably going you know things are going to be uh digital and streaming and on demand so uh these like the 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 on demand model is probably going to be the prevalent model where you're going to have episodic series that's launched in full a full se a full season is launched and you can watch it whenever you want you know they could 
some of these models could kind of gate you in by you have to be a subscriber and then or they might charge you there, there there could be some models that are tried but the old school network cable tv model of you know friday night tune in yeah that's probably that's probably not going to last forever um i i don't think that and i just think that's a that's a byproduct of just the 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 way that the consumer engages with the content and the technology that's just how it's evolved you know i mean i just would rather watch what i want to watch when i want to watch it than mm -hmm. have to schedule my friday night around you know whatever you know friends or you know whatever you know sitcom is popular you know um so yeah i i i would probably agree that that traditional tv model is probably not going to last forever yeah 10 years mm, maybe yeah i could see i could see most things being more on demand within 10 years um you know you're always going to have events right so something that's big is you know like sports events that's that's always going to be a thing so there's always going to be a scheduled event that you can watch something but this sort of like you know scheduling in a, a show on fridays and you tune in that's yeah, probably probably going to be on its way out i would suspect mm. Well, cool. Chris, do you have any additional questions? No, not to. Movie industry is far outside my realm. <laughs> yeah. yeah it's, well, a, cool. it's an interesting world. Well, thanks so much for sitting down with us yeah, today, Tarkin. We you. really appreciate it. My final question, I know many of our listeners are kind of fall under the backpack grinder, you know, somewhat, you know, I don't know, closet hobbyist. Mm -hmm. What is one piece of advice that you would give to either help them build their business or something that helped you when you were in that stage to kind of get to the next level? Look where others are not looking and figure out even the slightest innovation that you can <laughs> apply to your business. And, and I mean that seriously. I won't go too much into detail, but the way, one of the main reasons that I have been able to get this far is because I leverage store credit. It's a very, very, very simple concept and i don't it baffled me that every, it was ignored for so many years i, I would go on groups and people would be, i would be like you do realize you get 30 percent more in credit right and people would say yeah but then i just got to buy their stuff at retail and i'm like well you do realize that not everything they have at retail is overpriced right yeah but yeah and, and just people ignored it that's a very that's just a simple simple concept that i was able to really leverage to my advantage um so just thinking outside of the box and 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 looking at you know where what step back don't get too caught up in all the minutia of it's a car game you know look at it for what it is look at the numbers and where you can innovate where is there an inefficiency that's going to either save you money or make you money uh, or, or sorry an inefficiency that you can optimize and where is an innovation you can implement that's going to make you a little bit more money and don't have these insane expectations. I don't know if this is still as prevalent as it used to be, but people used to think that if you did not double up on a card, you were failing or, or it was bad. It's like, if you make 20, if you're a hobbyist and you're making 20%, if you're playing for free and making 20%, I don't care if that's 20 bucks, you're winning, especially if you're a hobbyist. If you're clearing your hobby and making 20%, that is growth. And in, and in, the, small, in, in the small business world, 25% margin is actually okay. Like a net 20 to 25% margin is okay. You know, is it amazing? No, it's not 40, 50%, but it's fine. So don't, you know, don't feel like you have to make 40, 50, 100% on these, on these things. 
if you can if you can recycle 20% gains over and over and over and again over again you're going to compound that and you're going to be doing very well so innovation and think outside the box and and that that's that's the best thing it's, i mean that's how i try to approach it and i and i i'm i'm proud of what i've been able to put together i, I hope i can continue doing it and and if there's any if there's you know if there's the one thing i can tell people is just try to do something different you know try to do something different <laughs> Think outside the box and try to do something different. Yeah, man. I'm telling you. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with us today, Tarkin. We greatly appreciate this. this is one of my favorite episodes that we've been yes, able to record. Um, well, I, man, that's an honor for to hear. I think it's the first time anybody's ever said that. So I'm humbled. <laughs> humbled. Seriously, that's pretty cool. Um, if our listeners want to find you online, uh, what where could they find you? Your Twitters, uh, store information, BIOS information, etc. Yeah, so um, Twitter is my primary sort of magic-oriented account, and that's at the, T-H-E underscore Tark, T-A-R-K. I do have a buy list I will be launching tomorrow, the Mana Leak USA um, buy list. It's our, my first buy list. I'm pretty excited. So hopefully it's well-received. I think our prices are going to be pretty attractive, and um, it's a pretty interesting um, thing that I'm doing. So I'll launch that tomorrow. I'll blast that as much as I can in the various Discord groups. Um, I would like to say uh, from day one, I started with the MTG Finance Central Facebook page. I will always, no matter where I go, who I talk to, I'll always try and represent that page. I still am an admin to this day. They're an educational uh, website. It's uh, admittedly, it's, it's much more geared towards beginners, but um, very non-biased, uh, very, very non-toxic, and it's just a good group. So I'll, I, I'm associated with them. Um, and then, yeah, just uh, just look for me in the discords. Um, I'm just Tarkon in in all the most of the finance discord groups. Uh, so, yeah. Cool, man. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This has been another episode of the Collect and Spec podcast. I hope everyone enjoyed and we will see you next week. Thank you, guys. Thank you.